it's like any art, right? You have a calling for it. It's a calling because you just can't escape it. That thing keeps calling you back to do it, this need to create in some facet. It's like any type of storytelling. If I could paint, I would totally paint. I would just do all the things to tell whatever story I want to tell or need to tell and share. I don't know if you're going to see this voice memo, but I thought I was happy. Are, are you happy? I'm not happy at all. The question is, are you happy? Are you happy? I'm the happiest I've ever are been right now. P.S. Be the person who you'd want to meet because somebody needs you. Welcome to Are You Happy? The Happy Hour. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Happy? Podcast. It's so great to be back to our original format where we're interviewing people about happiness and following their story, finding out what it is that makes them tick, but above all, finding out if they're happy and then, you know, what came before, what comes after. So without further ado, let's meet this amazing storyteller of whom I've been waiting to meet. Douglas Weissman, you are the coolest person I've met thus far in a pre-interview. And I cannot wait to learn more about how you empowered, how you storytell. So please, welcome to the show. How are you doing this fine Thursday? Thank you. I am doing well today. I offer that as a caveat because I feel great today. Yesterday, I didn't feel as great. The day before, I felt even worse. So it's like there are ups and downs. I'm willing to demonstrate that. Like not every day is a happy day or not every day can be as happy. Otherwise, what's the actual what's the actual measurement of that, right? But I'm willing to share that first and foremost, especially after our great pre-interview conversation. So people come in real deep when you and I are on a totally different level. I'm curious though, if you don't mind sharing what happened the other day that was like worse than yesterday. Honestly? My birthday. Shut up. <laughs> You're a March baby. I'm a March baby. March 27th. Look at us. I'm yeah. a March baby. My birthday was on the 16th and it was terrible. Hey, happy, terrible birthday to you. Like nothing happened. <laughs> my birthday was charming. Like I did wonderful things with my family. It's just that as I've gotten older, for whatever reason, every time it hits my birthday, I like sink. And part of it is is like this understanding of like, I've been on adventures and now I'm like suburban house dad and totally cool. And I love it. It's just that kind of concept of looking at a picture of me, thinking of my parents when I was, you know, of a certain age and then being like, wow, my daughter is never going to know how cool I once was. <laughs> That's so <laughs> untrue. But it's just, it's kind of this funny thing where I look back today and I'm like, oh, that was silly. But I've also had troubles with depression since I was 13, 12, 13. So it's like, it's a wave that I understand when it's there, what it is, but it doesn't detract from those times that I am happy and what it feels like and being cognizant of that and knowing what feeds that as well. Thank you for sharing that. I'm not sure if that's something that's easily shareable for you, your history with mental illness, or if that's something that's just like, oh, the sky is blue type of situation. Like, where where are you now in, in that respect? I think it depends on the day. Like, if, you, if I talked to you two days ago, I would not have shared it. But like, then when I come out the other side of one of those moments, I feel more comfortable just talking about it because now I'm well, when I'm not in it, right? Like when you're not in the darkness of a tunnel, you feel much more comfortable talking about when you were going through that tunnel. Not, I don't know how many people have walked through dark tunnels before, but I think the metaphor works. I think more than we imagine, honestly, yeah. especially if you're in San Francisco, there's some tunnels when you go through. I lived in San Francisco for four years and I did not have my car up there and I would walk 90% of the time everywhere, mm. I would walk through the tunnels and some of them were long and dark, soggy and dark and smelly, but still I would just be like, ah, well, I'm it's, not taking the bus. <laughs> yeah, true. So tell me about your travels. You're, you're a storyteller, you write, 
How did all of that start with you? It was actually one of the things that I struggled with for a long time because I love telling stories. But when you're growing up, you constantly hear from society around you. My parents were not one to tell me that I couldn't do this, but it's just you hear from other people, even if they're just making jokes. Oh, don't be a writer. There's no money in it. It's not a career. It's not this or that, right? And even though they might mean well, it only hurts when you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And then it pains me on the inside to think, well, I guess I'm going to work in a bank when I have no desire to do that. And it kills me a little every time I think about being restricted to something I don't want to do away from something that I do want to do. And I originally came to traveling. I traveled a lot as a kid inside the United States. I had family that lived in Montana and we would do road trips to Montana, traveling through all the states in between. My mom was really big on doing some educational trip that was associated with something that we were learning in school. So like I was learning about the gold rush in school. So we went up to gold rush country for like a week doing Sacramento and all these really cool things. So my parents were really active and great in that way. But it wasn't until I was 20 that I went to Costa Rica for a week and fell in love with it. And then basically, I think it was a month later, moved to Italy for a year and studied yeah. abroad. And I lived there. And that's when I was like, oh, I'm really going to commit to this alternative lifestyle and learning and hearing and listening and experiencing and then collecting these stories that I hear because I've always loved history just as a matter of they felt like stories to me. So when I came back from Italy, it was all about, all right, I'm going to commit to writing and figure out how I can do this and not be afraid of it anymore. I come back from Italy, I graduate from university, decide that I'm going to take a year off, which is great because it was the recession. So there was no job waiting for me at the end of that tunnel anyway. And I traveled around for another year and just planned it out what countries I was going to hit, met some friends along the way that happened to be kind of going in opposite directions. So we would just cross paths, be like, mm. hey, and then of course you meet people while you're doing it. Stories and just building stories upon stories upon stories. And I applied to grad school while I was away, didn't get in. And then returned back to Los Angeles, got a bunch of jobs that I hated, reapplied to grad school, and then went to South America for five months because I just needed to keep going. Kind of like if I stand still, I feel like I'm going to get smothered. Then I got into grad school. That's why I moved up to San Francisco, then did grad school. And it was all about creative writing and, and fiction. So I just learned, I learned how to tell stories in a way that I felt more comfortable. I found my voice in that program, which love or hate graduate programs, love or hate writing programs. It worked for me and it hyper sped my ability to tell stories. So I learned a lot faster than if I was doing it on my own. So if I didn't do that program, I probably would just start now understanding what my voice is as opposed to 12 years ago. And then I went to Sub-Saharan Africa for five months after I finished that program, then moved back to Los Angeles after that, re-met my wife, who we knew in each other in high school and rekindled a acquaintanceship, a friendship after I got back and she moved back. And then was like, oh, hey, let's date and blah, blah, blah. So it was just like story upon story. We moved to Rome together after we got married and then we had a daughter and like all these beautiful things coalesce. But it's just like one great adventure after another that I just find inspiration in and share and want to share and want to hear other people's stories. And, and it does inspire me to rant. And if you ever read one of my stories, a book or a travel story, you will find run on sentences over and over again on purpose. And this will tell you exactly why me talking to you now kind of summarizes all of those run on sentences. I love it. I'm a fan and I'm going to read everything you wrote. You remind me of David Sedaris and how he writes and you 
he writes as though you're hearing his thoughts. And it's so nice. It's so nice. I think that if you have that ability to transform the reader or listener, because now everything is audiobooks, right? <laughs> if you can if you can really transform them there into whatever it is that you're feeling or seeing or thinking, it's a unbelievable skill, I think. And Definitely. we take it for granted. I love that you found your voice in this writing program. I think that that's magical. I want to hear more about that. But before I do, I kind of want to go back really quickly because you mentioned something else. You mentioned being told that you couldn't be a writer. I had a similar situation when I was in the second grade. I wrote since I was very young. I remember writing these books. I would take paper and cut out the spine and insert the other paper and make books. And then I would write these crazy stories that I don't know where the heck they came from, but I would draw these crazy pictures and then I made so many of them that I created this library for my second grade classroom. And so there was like 10, 12 different titles just sitting there. So then this author comes to visit. Everyone's in this little circle in the library. I can see it clear as day. And he says, don't ever write. Do not become a writer. It will ruin you. <laughs> just like this huge, terrible cautionary tale that we didn't ask for. But he's like, don't do it. Just just don't do it, man. This, it's not worth the pain. It's not worth it. And I was just, I was crushed because that's what I wanted. I could feel the way that words work within you and how the story just pours out of you and just being able to I don't know being able to take your audience wherever it is that you went and you know really give them a crisp clean view of that it's it's amazing that sounds <laughs> like the worst career day ever I had the opposite experience but in second grade so it's like I feel like I just want to share that because well you had a writer come to your class while you were in second grade and you're making these stories and he was like oh it will crush your soul and I just imagine I just imagine Dolph Lundgren from Rocky Fours I would crush you but I, in second grade, wrote a story, and this was actually started me on my writing journey of like, oh, writing is fun and I like it. I wrote a story about Cinderella and her unhappily ever after. And it was, you know, the silly things that a second grader would come up with. It's all about like Rottweilers biting her dress and all these silly, ridiculous things. And my, I wrote the words and my friend drew pictures and we showed it to my teacher and she liked it so much, thought it was hilarious. She had us read it to the class. And that was what made me be like, storytelling's fun. I love it. I want to write stories or tell stories between that and then hearing stories from my grandparents and my parents and all these things and always feeling that connection to them. But it was the outside world that would come in and do that so crushing just don't do it right there's just no reason for it do some anything else it's like any art right you have a calling for it right it's not a calling because you feel this like spiritual awakening i mean you might but it's a calling because you just can't escape it like that thing keeps calling you back to do it whether you're making a million dollars flipping houses or making four dollars washing dishes like you still have this need to create in some facet and that's oh, yeah yeah you're gonna follow it or not definitely it's yeah I wonder what would have happened I mean I still wrote after that and I still won awards for things that I wrote but I no longer saw that as like the end-all be-all that it then became music and I played music for years and then I got like kind of like a arthritic thing so I'm like okay not going professional. What else can I do? Oh, I love making movies inside of my mind all the time. Why don't I make movies instead? So that's so I went to school for film and video. And now we're here, you know, doing documentary and film work and visual journalism and just any any part of storytelling. It's there and it followed me every which way. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? It's just 
storytelling. Like people, I mean, I say I'm a writer, I'm a travel writer, which I am, and I'm a novelist, which I am, and I do screenplays, which I do. But what you said nailed it. It's like any type of storytelling. Like if I could paint, I would totally paint. Like I would just do all the things to tell whatever story I want to tell or need to tell and share. But have you ever done interpretive dance? Yes. Shut up. Just once. I was in college, which starts most stories, I suppose, when you don't want to share things. I was in college. I was in a male beauty pageant that was supposed to be a fundraiser for this sorority. And I did an interpretive dance that was also ribbon dancing. And I modeled it after Will Ferrell's dance in old school. That's what I was going for. I feel like I came close to winning that, but I did not win, sadly. I hope you at least got Miss Congeniality. You know, unfortunately, didn't pass it out that year. Although I lost because my pickup line didn't land, even though my pickup line was better than everybody else's pickup line, hands down. But it it made you think. And that's why I didn't win. What, What was the pickup line? The first rule of genies is you can't wish for more wishes. But can you wish for more genies? Right. Okay. But, yeah. Like, what? That's is that a pickup line? What? It's like what? It, may, it engages conversation. Isn't that what a pickup line is for? No. Well, yeah, that's why I lost. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> does, does your wife find that appealing though? At least that that pickup line. You know, I never used it on her. So. Well, maybe it's good that it's retired. Yeah, probably not. Well, my best friend and I, we've known each other since we were three months old. So we have that kind of repartee that you would have mm. with someone that you've known for too long. And that shorthand and also that terrible sense of humor that you'll share with one person that everybody outside that bubble might not get. So there are moments when I will say a joke to her and I'm like crying, laughing, and she'll look at me and just be like, just, just call Matt. <laughs> You're right. I need to. And I'll like text him the joke. He gets it. Isn't it awesome to have those people in your life, to have those people that get those jokes? Yeah. Well, that's a sense of the happiness. Like it's, you know, I mean, the happiness comes from a lot of different things for me, but those relationships, those memories for me, I don't know about anybody else, you or people listening, but it's like, I can think of a random moment of just sitting there with my two best friends and laughing stupidly about whatever And just remembering that it was so funny at the time, but trying to explain it to somebody, right? And like you're laughing, but the person listening just can't get it. And they're looking at you like you're tongue tied and that your nose is all of a sudden behind your head. And I mean, just getting weirdest looks, but you think, but you remember it being so funny. And then you end the story with like, well, I guess you just had to be there, (laughs) right? But that's that's happiness because you're like in that moment, it just brings so much joy. And every time you think about it, it brings so much joy, even if you can't explain it. And I feel like for me, that's what happiness is, because it's every time I can do my best to explain the feeling, but I can't necessarily convey it in in that exact reference point. Like I have to use and this is writing for me, too. It's like I have to use similes. I have to use metaphors. I have to create a bridge for you to understand it. Otherwise, you're going to get lost and give me that crazy look like I have three heads and all of them are speaking, I don't know, Ukrainian. I think that's a perfect example or perfect metaphor. Whatever you want to call it. I think that's excellent. I really love how you explained that. I I enjoy listening to people tell me what happiness is to them or painting a picture around it. Like you sharing this experience that really, really does a great job at depicting what it feels like. That's excellent. So can you tell me what is like another key memory that exudes happiness for you? 
Yeah. I mean, it's such a loaded question, right? Because like, obviously, my wedding day is so, so up there. And the day my daughter was born, so up there. And I just have to mention this around my daughter being born. It was the realization I had a conversation. I was at a work retreat last year. And it was like all these people that I've worked with for a year or more that I was finally meeting in person because I've, I've worked remote since 2013. And so I'm the original remote hipster, like, well, before everybody else was doing it, I was working remote. But so I'm like meeting all these people who might know each other from working in an office in another place. And I'm like, well, here I am. Like, you've seen my face. I've seen you. But one of the guys, he was, I think he's 26, maybe. And super nice guy. But he kind of had this question of like, oh, my dad says having a kid, having me changed his life and blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I've heard that so many times. My dad told me I had friends that had kids and they would say, oh, having a kid changed your life. You just don't get it until it actually happens. And you realize that like, oh yeah, I understand the concept of like wanting to move worlds or wanting to get the like traditional American dream of like the house and the picket fence and the dog with the kid. But it's like, then all of a sudden you have a kid and you realize why, like you realize what the actual weight of it is and wanting to be that perfect parent that becomes like drastically terrifying to try and be because you know you're never going to be perfect but you just want to give them all the things that was like all of that rush in that moment as my daughter's like born and then on my wife's chest for about five seconds before they have to take her away and then they have to do like emergency it wasn't surgery but it was just like an emergency something and it was like this rush of like elation and then panic and then not knowing mm -hmm. what to do like am I staying with my wife or am I running to go with my newborn child as she goes to the NICU and like okay my wife's okay because family's with her I'm gonna go to the newborn and it was just like panic but at the same time understanding like delight and happiness because I would absolutely try and shift the earth office access if that means that she'd be healthy and happy. And this wasn't the moment that I meant to get on of like, you know, define a happy or describe a happy moment for me. But it's just kind of that it's like in happiness, you find those moments of, of why and reason. And it's like the core of what happiness can be and should be. And it's like, yeah, brief moment and hold on to it. So I guess that is the moment that I'll share, even though I think it's the most difficult moment to ascertain for people that don't have kids. Certainly didn't get it. I certainly didn't get it. Like I vaguely understood what people are saying but I didn't really comprehend the weight of it and how, how it just shifts your mental faculties. And maybe it doesn't for everybody, but for me, it was just. Oh, totally did. I have a son who's older now and he's on his own. But for me, I, I was always wondering if, you know, he would become the kind of person that he wanted to be. And if we would instill all the values and necessary learnings that he needed to go out into the world and be prepared. So that was where the anxiety was for me. So then before he moved out of the house, I, I told him like, look, I'm going to teach you everything you could possibly need to know. So that way, when you go out on your own, you're not going to call me in the middle of the night with a dumb question like, how do I start the washing machine? Yeah. <laughs> You should know this. You can't move out in the world if you don't know how to feed yourself. Okay. So I, I spent a, a good number of months teaching him everything he needed to know. He knew how to balance checkbook. He knew how to go shopping. He knew how to call the utilities and how to set them up. All these things that you just need to know. Yep. We did a crash course and now he's the most prepared of all the roommates in the apartment. Good job. No, that's perfect. <laughs> I had a crash course. It's not that my parents didn't intend to teach me these things. It's just that you ran out of time. Yeah. And I was like, I hightailed it to Europe. I was like, I'm 20. I'm going to do this thing. It's very different than just moving out and still having access to home in some way. I'm being 10,000. I don't know how many miles it is from LA to Florence. So I won't even pretend. But not 10 miles. Yeah, 10 miles. I was actually I was actually moving to Florence, California. It's not that no, I don't No, probably not 10,000. Sure. 10 million miles, 10 million miles away. Felt like 
10 million miles away. Like I was still in more of a coddled situation because it was a program that I'm participating in. So there was a bit of a cushion. And then there were a couple people from my university that I palled around with that like I knew vaguely. And then we're like, well, let's all roommate together. But we're still battling the majority of the language barrier. We're still all figuring out how to manage working and living in this cohabitation with five people and sharing rooms and who cleans what and are we buying individual groceries or we buying group grocery and oh hey this guy forgot to pull out money this month for rent what are we gonna do there was a lot of learning but it, these are also things that my parents can be like well in these situations prepare by putting a strainer over your head ducking under the table and kissing your ass goodbye <laughs> I mean, maybe we could have gotten that, but I didn't get that piece of information. But I think that's there's bravery that's assessed with leaving your country and going into a whole other place. Even if you had this nice little cushion underneath, you would still commendable to be to just leave your surroundings and go off and venture somewhere else. So where did you get the inspiration to do that? Was it really just I'm young, I'm doing my own thing, bye? Or did you have a kind of stirring of some sort? There was a stirring. I mean, similar to the idea of in second grade is when I found out that I wanted to write. In first grade, I remember my teacher had pictures of Santorini Greece on her wall. And I learned this recently, like last year, maybe that her husband was from Greece. And that's why they would go there because they would go there like every year. And it didn't register until my my mom said something about it last year and I was like, oh, that makes sense. But you know, to a first grader, like what, seven years old, like that never even crossed my mind. Like I just knew that place looks really cool. This person has gone there. That's really interesting and it's so different. And I knew those things at that age. And then when I was in, I don't know, maybe middle school, my cousin did the whole backpack. She was like the first person that I knew directly to get up and go backpacking across Europe and did like the whole one month or six week trip. And this was when it was like, you know, how to backpack through Europe for $5 a day. Now it's like how to do it for $100 a day or something. So that's just <laughs> lets you know that this was a while back. And I just thought that's really interesting. And I came back and I heard like, oh, you know, Europe, right? Continent, but at the same time registering, they're not states, they're countries. Like each place in Europe is a country. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So it's not like California versus Texas, it's Germany versus France. And now I'm registering that. And then when I got to like, 20. I was just like, I need to do this. Like I need to go. I have this itch to travel. And I just wanted to change because I was going to school. I was going to college 10 minutes away from my house. I was still living at home. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Like, it's not like I look back and I was ever upset about it. I just needed to do something different. And it's like, how do I shake this up? How do I just get out of this space? And that was kind of the best way and the most unique way for me to do it. Because I didn't just want to like go to Vegas for six months on, you know, some random exchange program. Like if I'm going to shake it up, I'm going to do it big. Yes. When I was in, I was in AmeriCorps. Are you familiar with AmeriCorps? Yeah. Wow. Not... Yeah. Thank, thank you. Most people are like, oh, is that like the Peace Corps? Yes, yes. That's what I would tell them. I'm like, it's the domestic Peace Corps. I, I think AmeriCorps is actually more dangerous than Peace Corps. Yeah, probably. But, you know, you get to apply and choose whatever program you want to go to. But then you have this list of choices that they all accept you and you get to select where you go. So my choices were D.C., Seattle, or Ukraine. So I almost domestic, is it? No, I, I almost chose Ukraine. I was this close. And then I ended up going to Seattle instead. And I taught high school kids how to do community service and care about it. Rather than like, I need this for graduation. Yep. And then I worked with a bunch of different folks, but it was the best, you know, you, on the weekends, you just take ferry boats and go off to the islands and explore. And it was, it was the best. That's awesome. For sure. When you write, do you write from your perspective or do you incorporate 
things that you hear from other people? It, it's a long gamut. So I'll do my own travel essays, my own personal essays. And that's all just about myself, my perspective, my experience. Then I'll do for the company that I work for, their global travel concierge service. So that's all about doing top 10 lists. It's all about trying to engage the audience in a way that wants them to learn more about the place that they're interested in, but also book the travel through the company. So it's less about me and more about the reader, right? And one of the things that when it comes to travel writing, I learned, and this is the secret, I tell everybody this, I'm not shy. The secret to travel writing is to write about your experience. It's not about where you go. It's about the experience that you have while you're there. And when I say experience, I mean, the tactile things, the things that shift your point of view. And that is what I always have to incorporate no matter what I'm writing, whether I'm writing the top 10 list for the company or if I'm writing the, you know, the personal travel essay about my time in Guatemala. Nobody cares about seeing the Coliseum. Everybody sees the Coliseum. Everyone's going to see the Coliseum. What they care about is like what it smells like when you're there, what you can hear when you're there. And the reason why when I was there, it shifted my experience about being excited by gladiators to being fearful of how the bloodshed and the actual event that was there because I'm seeing how grand of a scale of there's 40,000 people watching somebody's head get bashed in. And that's terrifying. Like humanity is awful in that way, right? Then that's, but that's the point is, is leading the way so the reader understands that mental shift through the experience that I'm having in the place as opposed to just trying to describe the place. And that's, and that's the travel writing game. But when it comes to novels, I can take so much, I take so much from my travel experience in that same way, using that same type of gamut of putting someone, immersing someone in this sense of space and trying to explore that sense of space through the character's point of view and how their mind leads them wherever it leads them, as opposed to trying to be like, oh, there's a table and on the table, there's a lamp and the lamp is green and the lamp has a yellow shade. And you don't actually see it too many details like that. You actually get lost in it as opposed to getting immersed in it. For people listening that that are interested in travel writing, would you say that it's still a very alive industry for people to work within? Or is it kind of something that's like veering off into other tangents that it's really not a applicable job option? I will be completely honest and say that travel writing is definitely a thing that I never thought I would be able to get into because it's so inundated with people that want to do it. Like who doesn't want to go travel and write about places, right? And same with like Instagram, traveling around and taking pictures of beautiful places. Like these are things so many people want to do. I fell into travel writing and I'm so lucky that I did. But I understand that my experience is completely unique in that regard because I answered a Craigslist ad. Like, and this is 2013, Craigslist was still a viable way of looking for work. But at the same time, it was a Craigslist ad. Like you just don't expect, I built a career off of a Craigslist ad. And it was just asking for people who had been to certain countries and write like a paragraph on your experience there. And I had done a blog, like I traveled to at that time, 30, 35 or maybe 38 countries, something like that. And so I, I was like, oh, I had a blog just to keep my parents and family understanding what I was doing and aware. And then, okay. So I just took some information from that, popped it in this email to the person. And then they're like, oh, this sounds great. And they hired me on to do some work for them. And then I explored and I got more and I was freelancing with them for years until it became like a full-time thing. But that's not everybody's experience. Like most people are doing travel blogs and trying to break in and, and the SEO business and like the actual business side of it is, is super difficult. I'm not going to say it's impossible because it's definitely not like, look at me. 
I got hired on a Craigslist ad. But it's just that you have you have to understand that there's just a lot of people out there that want to do the same thing, but they don't necessarily know how. So you have to jump in understanding what's going to differentiate you and your travel writing versus the other people. Like everybody wants to go to Italy, but not everybody is doing a travel blog on exploring Dallas. So it's like find your niche. I'm really curious to ask you, what is the one story that you have not been able to write, but that you just really want to? That is the story of my family would be that. And it's not, and I think it's one of those stories that just I'm too, I'm so close to that I have difficulty separating myself from it. And it's not that I want to do a biography on them, but turning it into fiction, but sharing those key moments in family history that represent kind of my grandfather as the patriarch and how he came to be that way. But my grandmother really as the matriarch and how she came to be that way. And like their long journeys from their respective histories. And my grandfather would always say that he was a gangster in in Brooklyn and he would have stayed that way if he didn't get drafted in the army in World War II and my grandmother whose family came from Russia in the pogroms like just during and and as like immediately the shift from the white revolution to the red revolution and being ousted and like running away for their lives and these are key moments in my family history and they're key moments in my history and stories I would hear growing up that I just really want to write down and share with the world that I just don't feel like I'm ready to do yet. Yeah. Can you tell me offhand like what are some things or some traits that have trickled down because of that history? Crippling anxiety might be one of them. I don't actually have crippling anxiety, but there is this sense of transgenerational trauma that whenever, I mean, especially with the rising anti-Semitism in America right now and around the world, it's just me and my family are keenly aware and constantly keeping up to date on what's going on and around because we've been around it. And it went from, yeah, my family escaping Russia because of it, you know, family and friends in Germany because of it. When I was 12 years old, the Jewish Community Center where I went to preschool, a guy walked in and started shooting people. And this was in 1999, 98-99. And so it's just, it's something that has been prevalent in either a story that's been shared with me or something that I've witnessed throughout my life. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that have been like self-preservation passed down through the generations. But at the same time, a sense of broader community has also been passed down because of it. And a sense of like, well, it's not that this is your community, keep everybody out, but it is a sense of like the world is your community. So let everybody in, which I think is lovely. It is. I think it's very lovely. Is your family very traditional? No, we we would be kind of that familiar cultural Judaism where, I mean, my parents and especially my dad, much more religious. I grew up more religious than I am now, certainly. But now that cultural Judaism is still present where we get together on the holidays. We understand what the holidays mean, but we definitely don't speak Hebrew. We use Yiddish words every now and then to emphasize these feelings that we definitely have, especially if we're talking about family history and grandparents and things. But we're not the type that like go to temple every weekend. We're not the type that stay kosher. But it also it creates a bit of a division between that sense of self and that sense of community and that sense of like, are you Jewish enough or are you American enough or are you doing this enough or are you that enough, which seems to permeate a lot of people's lives, whether it's because like, are you black enough or are you Hispanic enough or are you are you Jewish enough? Are you white enough? And I get that feeling a lot all throughout my life because there always felt like there was this gap between, well, these Jews doing this thing don't think I'm Jewish enough. The Israelis don't think I'm this enough because I'm not Israeli. And Americans in American history doesn't think that I'm American enough because I'm Jewish. And then I automatically have associations to others 
Rutgers, which I don't. Like I was born and raised here. My parents were born and raised here. My grandparents were born and raised here. Like, you know, we're what, fourth generation? I can't count. I'm a writer, not a mathematician. That's the concept, right? It's always trying to, again, come back to that sense of community and being like, well, community is this, not that, and therefore welcome all of the people as opposed to trying to shun some of the people. If I may say, as a outside observer, I think that you're a fine human being. And I think that that's what it adds up to as opposed to are you this enough or are you that enough? No one will ever be enough. And there is no definition for what is enough. And if there was, it's complete crap. <laughs> so I believe that, you know, for your community and any community, rather, just whatever it is that's inside and what your cultural community equates as that quintessential belief or structure or feeling, if that's inside and it matches what's agreed upon within the community, then that's all that matters. And everything else is just trash. I mean, really, you just, you nailed it. Like being a good person is is the ultimate symbol of happiness because it just demonstrates how you give and receive. Mm -hmm. And giving that to other people is so much so important. I really enjoy hearing people talk about how they interact with with other other people and how whatever it is that you do in your day to day, whether it's mundane or whether it's really big and you release this huge book with these grand ideas and concepts, anything that you do, any size is going to impact somebody. And I think that's just amazing. So thank you for writing. I appreciate it. So so what's next for you? Well, I have another book coming out next year. It's fiction. It's about a serial killer in World War II Paris. So it's definitely a fun romp of murderous sensibilities. But I also am still letting everybody know that my recent novel, Life Between Seconds, was released November 2022nd of last year. So it is available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. It's available at Target, which I always get excited by because who doesn't love a good Target run? I totally do. So these are just, you know, again, little things that bring me joy. And But Life Between Seconds is something that was the book that I started writing when I was in my grad program. It was a labor of love. Took me 11 years to get published just with all of the ins and outs of the industry and whatnot. And I, I love it. It's a question about trauma. It's a question about found family and a question about like, will you let yourself be happy even after experiencing grief? Hmm. Can you tell us a quote passage that's your favorite? Ooh, I mean, my you're favorite. biased, but... Well, that's, I mean, that's the problem. I am 100% biased, but my favorite, favorite, favorite is actually just the first line. I mean, I already went through the run-on sentence bit that I talk about, but I'll just share with you the first line. So rather than having four pages of one run-on sentence, which I do have in here, I'll just share this one line. Peter loved to hear the story of how his father tried to steal the son. Mm, that's very nice. Thank you. And it comes back to storytelling, doesn't it? It does. It so does. Oh, man. Our foundation for everything Are You Happy is storytelling. So I'm telling you, the, the founding group will be like elated to hear all of this. Oh, well, this whole episode, really. All of them, really. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I've loved reading about you. Your bio is awesome. Again, the book and tell us your socials, where to uh, find you, please. Life Between Seconds. Find it on Amazon or Target or Barnes & Noble or anywhere books are sold. That is the novel. Then you can find me. Douglas Weissman at Instagram, Douglas Weissman on LinkedIn, really active on LinkedIn and Instagram, Douglas Weissman on TikTok, Douglas Weissman on Facebook, DouglasWeissman.com. Luckily, my name's not super common, so really easy <laughs> to find me. But yes, we will list all of your info for your book, links to purchase, and then also all of your social info in the description of our episode. And we'll send you a copy of our little promotional reel so you can share it. And we'll share it with all of our 4 million friends. That doesn't even, that number doesn't even sound real. 4 million? Yeah, go take a look at TikTok. Amazing. I mean, you know how many followers <laughs> I have on TikTok? A thousand. 
billion. That's a really good number. 126. Hey, that's pretty darn good. <laughs> I'm sorry, but a million starts with one. That's a really good point. <laughs> I tell myself that every day. Please, by all means, follow us. We'll follow you back. And then you can follow me as well. I'm also in the digital space under the name that you see here, Vanessa the Vivacious. So please keep in contact. I love that we're both March babies. Yep, 100%. A lot of similar stories, except I didn't, not Jewish, but I can Same. be honorary. Yeah. No, 100%. All the stories <laughs> are communal. Exactly. Well, again, thanks. Have a wonderful day. I hope that it's the best Thursday of your life. Thank you. Thanks for being a guest. And thank you guys for listening to Are You Happy Podcast. Have the best Thursday of your lives as well. And we'll see you next week. So thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>